0: Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan. Joining me, as always, is Gareth.
1: Hello! Today, Gareth, we are taking on old-school classic The Army Game. Am I right in thinking this was ITV's first ever sitcom? That is, uh seems to be the case, yes. Uh, not okay. Not the
0: first sitcom, but it's certainly one of the first generation of sitcoms and one of the first really big... Uh, famous, popular ones, yeah, and, and and credited as ITV's first,
1: made by Granada from the North. We're going to get into this as we as we progress through the uh, through our discussion, but it's a little bit complicated, isn't it? Because the cast changed quite significantly after the first series. Do you want to just give us a little bit of an yeah, overview yeah. of how this, when it was made, and how the production worked? Yeah, so it it started in
0: 1957, mm. and there seems to be a bit of. Um variation and sources of what qualifies as a first series, second series, etc.
1: Right.
0: I know it started out as a fortnightly sitcom. Now that's interesting. For
1: non-British people, that means every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did discover that quite recently, that American people don't use the word fortnight. Anyway, that is unusual. But then again, that's purely because 60 years later, we're used to yeah. a weekly format. But I guess there was no reason that that had to be the case. And,
0: and you know, quite quickly, it became popular enough that they switched it to weekly anyway. Mm. Uh, but very, very beginnings, it was every two weeks. And um, bear in mind that you rehearse Monday to Friday, record on a Saturday, and then maybe have Sunday off, like, or whatever, it you know, however it works, rehearsals throughout the week, and yeah. then a day for filming. It's pretty full-on process. If you do that for a six-week stint,
1: mm.
0: it's just a nice little intense job this series ran for 39 episodes mm, right this was a a, a a weekly gig and so maybe they were thinking at first like that's that is too much to try and do every week it's too much work Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay a full year commitment basically september to june they seemed to run uh, so the, this the first series,
1: series was you said 1957
0: Yes, and then just every year is from that from that point
1: basically. So yeah, September to June genre. like the school year they would put us. Yeah, in they, they on, would have, have the summer they would have a couple again. of months off and then start again, yeah. Interesting. And it was so it's four series, right? Of the the original army game. We'll talk about spin-offs and things later.
0: That's how I reckon it. Yes, as I say, some think, some sources will call it five and have the first series split into two. Uh, and that makes things a bit complicated when you trying to work out about the cast and who's changed where mm. and all that sort of thing. And to add to that, in terms of the cast confusion, you know, we have our core cast of usually six, seven people. Yeah. So to, to just to let everyone know, Series 1 the, and Series 2, there are only a handful of episodes that still exist. Yes. Series 3 is one where like you've got everything, and then Series 4, there's some from there as well. Okay. Um, but the original cast, Series 1 and some of two cast... There's not a lot of episodes remaining, and of the ones that are remaining, yeah. every single one has at least one of the main cast missing. Okay. Either replaced in some plot-relevant way, or just casual way, or that person's just not there. Mm. So I I suspect that, you know, you're doing this for 39 weeks a year, you, you're you allowed a bit of time off. <laughs> you know, you're yeah, allowed got, to... Send, yeah, yeah. Uh, and sort of and I don't even... And like I say, it seems everyone that I've seen has at least one person missing. Maybe it was just on rotation. Uh, but then sometimes they handle that better than others. So one of the earlier episodes, for example, the major who runs the camp is not mm. there. And so a new officer is brought in to run it. And that's the whole plot. This new guy comes in. He's a bit useless, et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. I see. But then there's other times where... And in fact, the episode we're going to look at... Series 1,
1: episode 15, racks.
0: Uh, Michael Medwin isn't in it. He's the corporal of the little troop of our, our right. band of heroes. And that means that Alfie Bass's character, Bootsy, kind of takes his role. He's the one leading the mm-hmm. group.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's not really his normal thing. And so sometimes they just sort of transition that. There's another episode early on where they bring in Dick Emery, who's and he's obviously yeah. just playing the Alfie Bass role, the Bootsy role,
1: okay. uh, albeit on a different name. Like you wouldn't do that today. like, you, But no. it's... it's We've talked before about how early sitcom is very much a theatrical production being filmed, and that's Mm. what you would do in a theatrical production. You'd be on every night, and then some nights the understudy would be on.
0: Yeah, I I also think it might lend a bit to radio as well. Uh, Mm I think you get away with a lot more on radio, you just get someone who sounds kind of the same, and nobody really questions it. Whereas with the visual element as well, it's you identify with the people a lot
1: more, I think. Well, let's just make a point about how we're going to structure this episode for our listeners. So, yeah, the the episode we're looking at is series one, episode 15, which is Racks. And we'll talk about that in quite a lot of detail, as we usually do. But as you described, a lot of those early episodes are missing. So this is something of a rarity. So we're going to talk about that initial cast, which could probably be characterized as the ones that went on to be in the carry on films. But then what we want yeah. to do after that is talk about the later series, series 3, where we've watched quite a lot of episodes where it's almost entirely a different cast. So we'll sort of cover that in the second half. So for the first half, shall we shall we launch into our episode and kind of go off from there?
0: Sure. Do you want me to give you a little bit of background first? Yeah, go on. The the show was created by a writer called Sid Colin, and Sid Colin, you know, he was Wrote for all the usual suspects, 50s and 60s, and the radio and everything. Um, He actually worked a lot with Frankie Howard kind of later on. And uh, he wrote quite a few sitcoms in that period, in the 50s. Not a lot of them are really known now or have survived or anything like this. This is the one that carried over uh, from from all those decades. But apparently it was inspired by a film called Private's Progress, made in 1956. And that, that's, that is a comedy film, but it follows a soldier conscripted into the army, and he has to kind of, you see his progress throughout the, the thing. And the first act of that is him in like basic training, kind yes. of like Full Metal Jacket, but with less okay. um, murder. And <laughs> and uh, and then he goes on to be in the army and gets involved in some sort of nefarious plots and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But Sid Collins saw this and thought, oh, there's something there, that kind of first act. And... Playing the hard-headed sergeant-major type character in that film is William Hartnell.
1: William Hartnell, who is plays the sergeant-major in this first series. Yes. So
0: he literally just gone, I like that character. <laughs> let's, mm-hmm. let's bring that in. Let's do that. Uh, so yeah, so that's basically where the show came from. That's the concept. It was made for
1: TV. It didn't come from radio. Okay, so back to our episode. Now, the episode title is Rack's. And that's mm. W-R-A-A-C-S. Yes. I thought I'll ask, I'd ask you how, what this is. You're, you are a military man,
0: as we all know. <laughs> a... Well,
1: I mean, ultimately what it that is, the, the, we'll get into the plot line of the episode in a minute, but it's about some female um, army cadets, privates. And the, the racks. they were referred to as racks, And in real life, as far as I can tell, I was a little confused by the second A. In real life, it was the Women's Royal Army Corps which was during national service after the second world war that was essentially the, the the core in which women served you you probably know that the queen served she was a driver during the second world war mm-hmm. and that was the auxiliary territorial service the ats that's what she was in and the racks they were basically the successor organization to the ats after the war mm. now i've got to be honest with you i haven't got an answer for why there's a second A in this episode title because i googled <laughs> it and the only thing that came up with that with that double A was something to do with Australia. <laughs> it's nothing to do with this episode has got nothing to do with Australia. So I don't know whether that's an affectation or whether they weren't allowed to use the official title. I don't know. I don't know. But it, but it is. It's the Women's Royal Army Corps. That's what the episode is dealing with.
0: Yeah, in the script they say racks. I mean, if it,
1: they refer to these women as racks, as in, yeah, she yeah, is a rack, you are a rack, saying. they are racks.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, can I can I ask you a bit about national service and all that? So so just to just to the, basically this whole sitcom is set in the world of national service it's they are at nether hopping supply yeah. Ordnance depot it was a, a supply ordnance depot is basically just we we store a load of it's like uh you, you know
1: in you know in yes minister they are what's the what's the name of the ministry that that jim hacker is minister for administrative affairs or something that isn't <laughs> yeah, that means everything and nothing that's exactly what the supply ordnance depot is it's sort of something that's sort of important but Never gets the headlines, and you kind of need, but you don't need, and you know it's it's a catch-all, really.
0: Yeah, and so these guys are, you know, the whole point is they don't want to be there, they don't want to do any work, they're just they're scheming and trying to get off.
1: Well, that's conscription for you. When people say bring back national service, like we don't want an army full of people who don't want to be there. That's not going to be effective. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you know what it reminded me of?
0: Something we talked about recently was porridge. You know they're trapped there. They don't want to be there, and they're scheming
1: to get one over on the on yeah, the authority point. figure who
0: really has a lot of power over them and can make them, you know, give them terrible punishments.
1: Do you know what? That is spot on. I've I've been trying to make comparisons to Dad's Army all week and finding very few. you nailed it. It's, this is porridge. This is porridge, not not Dad's Army.
0: Well, I'll tell you the the other big comparison that I made, which shocked me slightly, actually, because. I've I've never really seen much of the Army Game before, so it's fairly new to me. How much uh, it ain't half hot, Mum, owes to this. It is
1: really the
0: exact same set. Up. It's just you know that yeah, kind of yeah, the hard nosed Sergeant Major and then this bunch of misfits, even with the similar kind of the stupid mm-hmm. one and the camp one and and all that sort of stuff. It's bordering on plagiarism. <laughs> I was I'm shocked, <laughs> frankly. I I and because I hadn't seen the Army Game, it had never struck me. But I can't believe they got away with that, like, 15 years later.
1: <laughs> I would have thought when, when It Ain't Our Thought Mum came out in the late 70s, then people would remember the army game, wouldn't they? Certainly. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like we say, with
0: Porridge, it's it's great to have your characters trapped somewhere, trapped with people they wouldn't necessarily get on with, um, mm-hmm. you know, forced by an authority figure that they have to fight against, little victories, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So let, let's just get into the episode, though. Let's, uh, when, and, and it opens with the, your Granada title card from the North, Granada, mm-hmm. yes. Manchester, and these, this first series always opened with William Hartnell kind of shouting at the troops. He's like, you're in the army now, come on. Yeah. yeah. Later series have this kind of disembodied heads vibe to their uh, opening credits where they give yes. you the cast. But just in terms of the opening credits here, uh, and like I was saying about the missing cast every now and then, um, these opening credits have, as far as I can tell, they have three named people. Uh, in yep. the opening credits, so it'll be William Hartnell, Alfie Bass, Jeffrey Sumner, or Michael Medwin. Yeah, and it seems mm-hmm. to have three depending on who's in that episode because it was different every one that <laughs> I saw. Uh, but I found that interesting. Like William Hartnell was always in that list. Like he was the, and like none the of these guys were established stars or anything. Uh, they were all right. sort of maybe not unknowns, but you know they weren't. They weren't brought in to lend a, a name to the. Well, show. Well, let's
1: talk about William Hartnell then, because I guess I guess. He's probably the most famous name because he went on to play Doctor Who and that's you know, that 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 ascribes a certain level of celebrity to anyone who plays that role. Hmm. And you said he'd been in that Privates on Parade film before. Yeah. Privates Parade. But was yeah. but sorry, <laughs> what's Privates on Parade? Is that in a carry that's, on? That's me? in your personal collection, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, you know. <laughs> um not been asked for. Um so so he wasn't the star then? He, this was obviously before Doctor Who. He was just a... Yeah. Tell me he was a jobbing actor, Alan.
0: Um, yeah, he was. Um, uh, I, I, William Hartnell is quite an interesting story. He was, a, you know, an, born in 1908. Right. But uh, illegitimate, no father. You know, he was kind of as a teenager just knocking around in some sort of murky criminal underworld, sort of petty crime and things like that. And then... Right. Uh, so this is what I was reading. Uh, just doing a bit of Wikipedia research, you know, but... Um, and uh, because he's a who, a who person, I'm sure that there's loads of people out there who kind of know the ins and outs of his life story. Yeah. But, but you see, it says here that at the age of 16, he was sort of taken in by an art collector named Hugh Blaker, a sort of middle aged art collector, sort of oh, became right. an unofficial guardian for him and sort of set mm-hmm. him up, paid for him to go to drama school and stuff like that. Now,
1: is this just a different time, or does that sound really <laughs> I weird? I mean, dodgy. I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm reading into that. Perhaps unfairly to all parties, but you know. That, I want to see that, the that best scene in him the with world, Neil and I, he, but... says he came up here with his nephew. <laughs> yeah, that's him.
0: <laughs> so even when William Hartnell got married, uh, they lived in a house that was owned by this Hugh Blaker guy. Like he supported. It's him great he like Great Expectations,
1: isn't it? Well,
0: that was it. Is, is, that, it's a, a is that a wholesome sort story? of a old Victorian holdover? Like we someone has to look after the waifs because the the state doesn't do it. And so we have philanthropists and that sort of thing. Or is it weird? I'm not sure. Mm. But anyway, that that was how William Arnold um, kind of got his foot up uh, and, and managed to begin a career as an actor. And then made the usual journey through that kind of acting world, you know, had to just build a reputation. Did serve in the army during the war. Um, he was discharged, or I don't know what the word is, but he, he had a nervous breakdown and had to be okay. kind of sent out. I'm like, So he didn't. The
1: war.
0: I think that did, did happen did in SP the club.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah well, like, well, what I mean by that is in the First World War, they just shot you. Yeah. In the Second World War, they were slightly more sympathetic.
0: Mm. So, yeah, Army Game was his first regular role on TV, which is not that surprising because TV, you know, was only just getting going in terms of radio sure. series and stuff. So, yeah. like, uh, but he, he, so he'd had a, the odd appearance here and there, obviously. As but he'd be 50 then, I'm doing the maths, he'd be nearly 50 there. Yeah, fifty when the show started, maybe forty nine, mm. and and that and this is he was a star because of this show. He was well known because of mm. it, uh, mm. and the Doctor Who thing came at what sixty three,
1: so it was a few years mm. later. Yeah, the Doctor Who wasn't what it you know it was, it was that new was show. the first was new science who, fiction yeah, yeah. show. It's not like it's not like now when there's a big Who who's going to be the next Doctor Who that everyone's excited about it, and it's everyone knows what that means for someone's career, don't they? I wouldn't imagine it was the same for William Hartnell. Well, I heard that uh, he he took the role, Doctor Who,
0: because it was so different. Like, he'd been typecast as this kind of hard-headed yes. policeman, drill sergeant type mm. character. That was what he played all the time. And this character was different, a sort of kind of wacky, eccentric wizard kind of man. And so yeah. he he sort of jumped at the chance to do it. It does seem like he just hated his everything he did though he's a very famously a very grumpy man and you see him being yeah he just he just seems to hate his life
1: and everything he did but there you go that was that was life in the 60s okay fair enough all right so let's go through this episode so we we, the opening sequence is it's a kind of setup scene where the the major is on the phone to the to the local general Mm -hmm. and there's a little bit of kind of plot being established here but the, essentially this is just to establish that the general is a bit of an intimidating guy and that we're all supposed to be a little bit scared of him.
0: Mhm. We get we get some some straightforward plot stuff here and say this isn't the first episode where we're establishing the character of the major or anything like that but he's reading a book about pigs he's obsessed with pigs that's his thing Mm -hmm. like he uses the opportunities he's at this cushy he's got a cushy job you know a post-war cushy position in nether hopping and he doesn't want to put it at risk which is, again, any sort of military-based thing, that's, there's an upper-class officer who's just trying to keep his head down. It's exactly yeah. the same in Ain't Half Hot Mum. It's like, yeah. no, God for God's sakes, we don't want to get sent up to the front lines. <laughs> like, let's just we don't want to avoid wanna, yeah, that we don't at all costs.
1: Literally put our head above the parapet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, no, the theatrical troop is extremely important. We need to look <laughs> after them. I tell you what, what I noticed about this scene, though, Alan, um, is that we, we get a, like a split screen. So we've got the Major and the General who are on the phone. And there's a sort of transitional scene between the two where there's a mm. diagonal split screen, and we yeah. see one in one corner, the other in the corner. I thought, I thought, well, that's 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 interesting television work, especially for the time.
0: Yeah, and bear in mind this was all live transmission. Okay, all this certainly the earlier ones. Mm. I think they all were, but certainly the. Oh, early sorry. Ones let
1: me were. let me clarify that. So I I picked up just from a couple of stumbled lines that this was filmed as live. You're telling me it wasn't even filmed. It went out, transmitted live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which wow, most TV did okay. back then. Yeah, that was almost all of it, because recording it okay, yeah, yeah, okay. and then playing it was a a, a completely, you know, a, a whole extra layer of tech to do. Yeah, it was a, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, go back to this uh, this split screen. Well, I I'm not familiar enough with the technology to tell you how it's done, but I I can sort of talk around it a bit because mm. one thing I notice is when we switch we switch from a one shot of the major to the split screen. And it is a different camera. The the, the angle on the may just, yes. um, just switches slightly. So it's definitely a different camera that they had set up with the split screen thing already kind of in place, ready to go, so the uh-huh. vision mixer can just click the button and it goes to it. And I'm not sure exactly how that's done. It might be some sort of iris-like flag on literally cutting off half the camera so that you can overlay one on the other, like yep. it, almost like a green screen. You know, it's like you... Sure. You black out one half of the screen, and then the other thing will come off it. I noticed as well that the the shot of the general is much brighter; it's more exposed than the mm. than the major. He's darker, so I, I think that might be part of it. Like one is overlaid on the other somehow. Okay, interesting, not quite, but um, that's kind of just me piecing together what I can see. I don't really; I'm not familiar with the technology that well. But it's great,
1: isn't it? Doesn't it look fantastic? Yeah, really impressive.
0: <laughs> and for a phone call, you know, a split screen phone call—it's a
1: classic way of doing it. Well, it's a classic way of doing it in, in you know, in films, <laughs> and mm. uh, it, it, certainly in the modern day, you know. But I, I was really surprised. I was like, "Wow, okay, that's a that looks technically interesting," you know. Mm. And you don't see a lot of that in the show, to be fair. There's not a lot of no,
0: examples it, of no, stuff like I, that. No, because
1: this is was literally the first scene I watched of the Army Game. And I thought, oh, this is innovative. This is Citizen Kane. Wow. <laughs> and then it just didn't happen again. You know, nothing like that happened again through all the episodes I watched. <laughs> there was this... Then, then, And this is where I was going to ask you about the live transmission thing. Because there's this weird transition out of this scene. So he puts the phone down to the general. And then essentially what happens next in the action is that Bullymore comes in and the major is talking to Bullymore. Yeah. But there's a pause. There's like five or six seconds. And I don't know if... I don't know if William Martin's missed his cue or what. Yes, sir. Oh, blimey, that's tough. How the hell am I going to get out of that one? <laughs> right, well, there we go. Oh, ah, oh to measure that. <laughs> and then in walks, and then in walks William Hartnell. That's not scripted. That is not tight dialogue. <laughs> I don't know. Did Hartnell miss his cue? What happened there? I'm not sure. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I do find it very interesting. Like
0: the, it, it's obviously written with this in mind. You you will have a scene with the the boys in the in the in 29 and then it'll cut mm. to a scene with the sergeant major in the uh, you know in the majors in the major's office or whatever uh, like they've timed it so that okay we go to this scene to buy us time because we're setting up for the next thing over here or like one actor will leave the scene slightly earlier because the next scene is them walking into another room or you're know, them doing something so mm. they obviously have to time the theatrical entrances and exits in, in that way and it'd be very interesting to see the setup of the stages and everything because it was filmed in front of an audience as well. It's got a live audience. Uh, we do, we do also have you said um, Bullymore, uh, uh, William Hartnell. He does come in covered in snow. Uh, we do oh, have yes, a lot of fake in snow. snow in this episode. This episode went out on December twenty seventh, nineteen fifty seven. So obviously it was they were because you're filming and putting out that set at the same time.
1: You know you can be as topical as you want I got a couple of notes on this so my first note was fake snow full stop terrible full stop <laughs> but then about 20 minutes later I've written a note which is this fake snow is quite charming yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like when when they were outdoor scenes and they had the snow falling it was obviously just some chump above the camera line Yeah, there's one just row, just sprinkling one white like paper.
0: layer of snow in like <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It but it was it was I found it rather endearing it was terrible but but it was sort of cute <laughs> like a, like an amdram theatre production of snow you know So we go from there now we get our first scene in hut 29 where we see our little troop of soldiers and again this this is our first cast and uh, you you sort of immediately recognize some of these guys as some of the carry-on stars so we'll we'll talk we'll talk around these the first thing first person we see is Charles Hawtrey, and he's knitting because he's a homosexual you see (laughs) because you
0: he you know he's (laughs) one of them
1: yeah um, they, they do a lot of that. I mean, it's that's 1957 coding, isn't it? Like, you know. <laughs> it's not legal yet. But look, he's knitting. You know what we're saying? You
0: know. <laughs> you, even your mother knows. Okay. So look, it's he knitting. He's knitting. That gets a bit of a laugh every time. And I was wondering about this. I would have thought if you're in the army or in the you know national service, or whatever. Like as even as a like being able to knit and sew and stuff like that was a useful skill. I don't think that would have been a particularly unusual thing. Maybe sewing. I'm not sure.
1: Uh, Listen, I'm I'm not sure because my my very brief, undistinguished army service was 30 years later. But you had a matron for that. You needed a sock darning or a sock sewing. You took it to a woman. That is what happened in 1992. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah but that's because you were 16 <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe but I think in the army in the trenches you just you had to kind of those sort of skills would have been useful anyway I don't like they I never it, it's interesting because in the show he's never belittled in any way really for his effects no uh, no absolutely uh, not. but also the character is his nickname is the professor because he wears glasses <laughs> right I guess.
1: Yeah. Like in time, gentlemen, please. Prof.
0: <laughs> Remember when he won two <laughs> quid at the Fact. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> But the the thing is, when if you're gonna call a character professor, presumably they're the brainy one, you know, they're university educated. Uh, mm-hmm. But um <laughs> but uh he never really does anything where you go, Oh, he's the one we always go to him for the ideas or anything like that. In the episodes I've seen, which is not that many, he's not like that. No. But he's also not written as the effeminate or the gay one or whatever. Not particularly.
1: No, he's quite camp.
0: That yeah. th- That's because it's Charles Hawtrey. I think... Mm, maybe. I think they wrote the professor, hired someone with glasses, and it turned out to be Charles Hawtrey so it became the gay one. <laughs>
1: like, I think... Oh, okay. okay. I think that's give him, give him a knitting needle.
0: <laughs> so it's kind of not quite been written in. <laughs> yeah,
1: but yes, okay. it's in, right. it's
0: interesting how that is shown and then yeah like I say he's not he's one of the boys it's it's not it's not really a factor and I think that goes mm-hmm. for all of them they're all all—they're this bunch of misfits but they they have a common purpose and they have a common they all like each other even when they're falling out
1: so who else do we have there we have Bernard Breslaw. Who, again, you'll recognize from Carry On Films. And he's playing that,
0: oh, Sid
1: Bernard Breslau <laughs> character that he always plays. He's <laughs> and, the stupid uh, one, yeah. He's the stupid one, yeah. So he's coded thick and he's got a little pet mouse and he's just an idiot.
0: And this, Bernard Breslau was quite young. He was born in 1934. Mm. So he was in his early 20s when they did this. And I wanted to ask you about that as well because... As far as I'm concerned, national service is something you do when you're like 19, right? So how come yeah. most of these guys are in their 40s and probably would have served during the war if they weren't fit and able? <laughs> yeah. and never, we never seem to question that. <laughs> yeah, that might be a problem.
1: <laughs> I think that's just a casting thing, right? Well, by then, by then national, service, national service was basically a hangover from the war. Mm. Um, so conscription had started well, in 1939. But then, obviously, after the war finished, there was still national service. Hmm. We obviously know that people were called up during the First World War and conscripted. But then it happened again in 1939. And the idea was that anyone from the age of 18 to 41 was eligible, was liable to be called up, is the expression they used. There were exceptions. Like, for our family, our family were all coal miners. And so people hmm. in those reserved occupations, they called them, wouldn't be called up. Bevan boys. Bevan boys are a little different. So, so our family and other families who lived where we came from were coal miners, so weren't called up. The Bevan boys were people who from elsewhere who were called up, but rather than serving the war, they served in the coal mines uh, uh, because because the uh, that we needed because the country that. needed more coal. That that was that was part of the war effort, you know. So then, anyway, after the war, people weren't really demobilised straight away. After the war, they started to demobilise, but it took a long time to get back down to peacetime levels so people were still hmm. being called up you know to sort of mop up in, in in germany and so on but 1948 was when the national service act uh, came in and at that point anyone from 17 to 21 they had to serve 18 months uh, and then they would go onto the reserve list for a, for a number of years after that but you know like world war Two was done but britain still had still plenty of poorly armed brown people to oppress as we mm. uh, um, as we uh, I think they desperately call it hang on to the emperor the decolonization emperor. <laughs> is the is the term that we use now 50 years later but decolonization was a pretty messy and bloody business at times but having said that the the so you, you would be called up for your national service I, I'm really not sure how a decision was made in, to, in terms of where you went. You know, c- could you choose? I'd like to go to Kenya to kill people. No, I'll just I'll just serve in the logistics corps, please. Probably not. <laughs> I, I dare say you were told where you had to go. But I, I suspect that for the majority of young men, and it was men, the army game was probably a closer approximation to their service than... Mm. You know, some people did serve and fight and see action, but, but I think in the main, particularly in later years this this probably would be a fairly relatable experience.
0: Mm. And it was almost like doing your prison time, you know, you just had to not count off the days. And, uh, yeah. To some extent, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, my, my concept of national service is almost like what I think of as the university experience now. It's like it mm. gets you out of this little village, this little kind of yeah. narrow band that you live in. It's going to introduce you to other people and different skills and and trades and potentially open doors for you, even if it's just literally you've learned a trade.
1: Well, see the world, travel, meet new people, kill them. (laughs) Yes. That's the problem. That's the problem with it. (laughs) Yes, I went to Malaysia. It was wonderful. I killed so many people. (laughs) (laughs)
0: But um, I think when people go, oh, bring back national service, that's what they mean. Uh, I think there's perhaps, yeah, slightly less murderous ways of doing it. I'm not sure it is. I I think
1: the sort of people who say bring back national service, they want young people to be more disciplined. They don't want them to see the world. They don't want them to have great experiences. They want them to shut up. <laughs> they want them to be shouted at by William Hartnell. <laughs> Incidentally, the Bring Back National Service Brigade, like National Service ended in 1960. Yeah. So if you sir, if you did National Service, you were born f- 1942 at the latest. That makes you 80. Now, in my experience, the people who say Bring Back National Service are not in their 80s. They're in their 50s and 60s. And they've got <laughs> no idea what that means. <laughs> Did their parents no harm? Their alcoholic father well, exactly. who hit them all the time didn't, didn't do any harm? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, do you want to know my, my national service, uh, my bring back national service um, idea? A little bit of politics. I worked in my 20s. I worked in retail. And I think everyone should do six months customer service either working in retail or working in a bar or just just dealing with people I think it would do them a world of good and it would make people more patient in shops now that is my that is my that is my big political idea but I'm not I'm not I'm not really um, lobbying for a referendum you know I'm not, that, I'm not that committed to it. <laughs> I think economically that kind of
0: happens to most people anyway, isn't it? You do six months working in the shop when you're a oh, teenager.
1: Yeah. No shops anymore. Well, that's the other thing. It might stave off Amazon <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> anyway, a little bit of politics there. A little bit of poorly thought through and <laughs> incomprehensible politics. Let's get back to the episode. So we've, who else have we got on the hook? We said Charles Hawtrey and Bernard Breslau. So you got Charles
0: Hawtrey, Bernard Breslau and Norman Rossington we have here.
1: Norman Rossington.
0: Now, yeah, all these guys went on to do carry-on stuff. I think all of them appeared in a, another show called Our House as well, which was made in the early 60s, which was about a bunch of misfits who lived in a house together. It's got most of the carry-on regulars in it. Right. Uh, like what, you, And then that was after the carry-on films had begun. So, you know, it was not completely unconnected. It's not completely coincidental or anything. Uh, Norman Rossington, yeah, he he kind went on to be a f- in a few Carry On films. Never quite was one of the regulars, but one of those faces you recognise, you know. You I, I him,
1: certainly so. recognised him. I recognised him from one of the Sharp films because I love Sharp. I love Sharp. Uh, I <laughs> yes, Sharp yes. So I recognised him from that. But 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 he was he was in the early Carry On films, wasn't he? But the sort of black and white ones, the early days. I think so. Yeah, definitely some of those. Yeah, he was in, like I say, he was in that group in the early sixties.
0: Uh, he was in Curry and Chips in 1969, of course. He was a regular in that. Oof. <laughs> There's quite a few Spike Milligan connections with people involved here, the writers yeah. and stuff, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charles Hawthorne is interesting. I was looking him up. He's, you know, acting yeah. since he was a child. He, he was a boy soprano. Okay. Uh, always seemed to specialise in comedy. It was He was a sort of a, a stooge for Will Hay in a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Uh, real kind of old school kind of variety comedy stuff. The Army Game, again, that's the same for all these guys. The Army Game is the thing that kind of boosted their profile quite considerably, made them much more well-known. And in Charles Hortry's case, sort of pushed him into the the carry-on gig, which is what became his bread and butter. And then because of the whole, you know, alcoholism thing, never really did a lot of other stuff, you know, he never quite developed into anything else. But like I say, a lot of these yeah. guys you know a lot of these guys got a big boost from their career from the show, but they were also in their 40s already so it 's not like um...
1: well you say that 's an interesting question i 'm sorry i 'm going off at a tangent here. How big was this? you know this was a big boost for them all yeah it, was, was it this, was huge. was this yeah. huge yeah and i um I think the second
0: series got switched to like Friday evenings, you know that was it was switched mm. to a more prime time slot because it was so popular. You know, and even after the first cast left, it's, it does, I mean, they, they got a few more years out of it. That that second cast, the second wave, they are not the same, quite the same household names. But I think that's mm. because if I said to you the name Charles Hortree, Be- Bernard Breslau, you're thinking carry on. That's why they're famous. Sure. If they hadn't, yes, if true. that hadn't happened, which was a bit of a weird just thing that happened. Would you know these guys? Oh, it's that guy in the army game. Oh yeah. It'd be like Norman mm. Rossington. You know, oh yeah, I've seen him in a few things. Yeah, I know I kinda know his face. Yeah. But the yeah. the carry on has given them a, a life well beyond that.
1: You could say the same about William Hartnell, couldn't you? He's Doctor Who, he's not
0: Yeah Bullimore. Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. But you know, it's not coincidence that these guys went on to do other things and, and were famous because you know, they've brought together a nice little bit of talent here.
1: Do you have a little bit of background on Bernard Breslau for us?
0: Yeah, obviously he was a the young a younger man there, so this was very much his big break. Yeah. He actually got a scholarship to go to RADA, so you know that's how he he found his way in. It. All these guys are working class, kit. like I think that like mm-hmm. we, today acting is middle class, and there's there's yeah. great s- efforts to try and bring working class voices back into the performing arts but back then it wasn't a good job it wasn't a well-paid job it wasn't a stable job it wasn't a respectable job so mm. they're all working class guys who are doing it because and it was a hard life you know you're working the rep and, and living in some crappy digs some slums in, in like around theatrical world and you know and they're all alcoholics
1: that does come up a lot doesn't it i mean that does that it's like it's like um, all the jazz musicians of the '30s just just on heroin, just all on heroin, <laughs> <laughs> like the Carry On guys, all drunk all the time. <laughs> but
0: yeah, but with Ber- and Bernard Breslau, you know, he, he this character. Made his name, and he was very famous for it. You know, and they did the whole thing with like novelty singles and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. he he played this character, basically the same character by a different name, mm. in quite a few films. And even the Carry On films, mm. he tends to be the big stupid one. He's six foot seven or something. You know, it's like a <laughs> yeah. he's a big he's stupid a big dope. Bloke. Yeah, exactly. And he plays it really a galoot. Man. When I was five, I asked me mum. Oh, won't you tell me, please? From where did baby come? You come from heaven, don't you know? I said I thought I would come from Bo. I only asked. I only asked. And he died quite young, you know. He, he well, relatively young. He was less than sixty. He had a heart attack. You know, it's like not okay. perhaps not that surprising either health mm. of these guys but uh the only other sort of sitcom i could think of him that he was a regular in was man's best friends in the 80s it was a fulton Mackay vehicle a sort of post porridge fulton Mackay okay. vehicle in which he was a regular cast member fulton Mackay makes a appearance in the army game by the way he's in one episode a young, a oh, young really? Mackay. yeah so uh conspicuous in his absence there is michael medwin and he's not in this episode so I'll just have a quick okay. quick mention of him because he is yeah, in most please. of this first episode. He plays the corporal, so he's like the the schemer. And we'll we, with the episodes we've seen later with Flogger Hoskins, that's that's the it basically exact it's basically exactly the same Cock, character, cheeky Cockney spiv type guy. He's the schemer, yeah. and you'll see in this episode that Alfie Bass's character has to kind of he's the one that comes up with the plans and all that sort of thing. Yes. So that's the Michael Medwin role, and Michael Medwin you know not someone i'm particularly familiar with um he in later life he became a producer he did film and theater more like behind the scenes the only other sort of regular sitcom role he's he's a regular in colin sandwich which was a mel smith uh, I sitcom. In the, in the I, I remember
1: it very vaguely i remember watching it but yeah,
0: one of the Michael Medwin, one of those people who was in a lot of things, uh, but not really kind of doesn't jump out at you. And yeah, I, I couldn't quite, I couldn't mm-hmm. quite place him or any or, uh, with anything specific. But yeah, again, this was the role that sort of uh, pushed him, pushed him forward. Uh, uh, but then, yes, let's talk about the other cast member that we get in this scene where we establish all our privates. Alfie Bass playing Bootsy or Excused Boots Bisley, so he doesn't wear boots because of his bad feet. Uh, therefore his bad he is plates, known as, he's bad plates C- me. Cockney you know. rhyming slang <laughs> <alone>. <laughs> Yeah. Um and therefore he's known as Excuse Boots or Bootsy for short. And yeah. this character is probably the most interesting because it's the one that runs throughout the two
1: main Yeah, it's interesting. Stages. Well, you know, before we talk about the character, why why didn't Alfie Bass go into the carry on films? Why did he stay on in the army game when everybody else moved on? I wonder what I wonder what the mechanism was there.
0: It's a good question. I'm not sure, and and the problem is the swap over of cast wasn't even a very clean thing. I don't think it was no, like I'm sure in, in. I I can't quite. It's difficult to get the information, but I'm sure in series two they're kind of swapping between William Hartnell and Bill Fraser as as the sergeant major character. Mm. That snudge character was that we come we're going to come to later was established before William Hartnell left, I can't quite work out. If that was just like whenever one wanted a week off, the other one would fill in or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. But, but yeah, there there was this kind of exodus. I'm not quite sure why that was and what spurred that. Maybe it was Carry On Sergeant. We'll talk about that in a bit. But Alfie Bass, yeah, he's not really in the Carry On films. I don't think he's in them at all. Is he? He's
1: certainly not in a signif- any significant way. Yeah, I mean, you, you may you may have been in one or two. I don't I don't know. But he's not carry. On. He's not part of that Carry On crew, is he? Mm. But why is that? I
0: don't know. He's stuck right. with the show. It's got to be a good, solid job, you know. It's like, why Why is Adam Woodjack in EastEnders after 40 years? You know, mm-hmm. some people move on and try and do something else. Some people go, oh, I'm all right with this. It's paying the bills. Um, but Alfie Bass, yeah, born in 1916. Uh, he was the youngest of 10 children. How about that? Wow. <laughs> so probably desperate for attention. Uh, yeah. And always was interested in acting. Um, one of, another one of those where his career really only set off kind of after the war. He appeared in an Oscar-winning film in uh, uh, 1957, uh, uh, a film that won Best Black and White Short Film. <laughs> he was he was in that <laughs> very <laughs> and, good. And he was really he was just your classic quintessential character actor. He he, t- he throughout his entire career he would turn up in small roles in something never really the lead you know just a supporting character but always a solid,
1: we a saw solid him choice until yeah. death has do part didn't we yeah um the later series the color series
0: yeah yeah he came up in are you being served as well for mm. a brief brief ride in that what what i found interesting as as the the show progressed is that that character does change a little bit i think um he becomes
1: more childlike and slightly yeah. naive in the later series? Yeah, I didn't I didn't I've gotta be honest, I didn't like the character. This is obviously the breakout character, Bootsy and Snudge. Mm. But I, I didn't I didn't I didn't warn to him. He didn't didn't have many endearing features. He just seemed a bit Yeah, childlike's good. He seemed a bit stupid and annoying.
0: <laughs> yes. So obviously in the early incarnation, Bernard Breslau is the stupid one. Yeah. And that is replaced quite directly with um Ted Lindley in the later series. But Alfie Bass's character, yeah, he's not hes not the stupid one. It's childlike. There's a sort of naivety to him, but also it's, yeah, this real... And he looks up to Snudge as a sort of weird stepfather who, you know, sometimes mm. he hates him, sometimes he loves him kind of weird thing going on. It's, And, yeah. you know, this is a 45-year-old man as well doing this, so it all just has a bit yes. of a weird vibe about it. <laughs> yes. But I, I quite like what he does. I think there's a real charm to it. And especially in the later series, I think it is missed in the very last series where he does leave. There's, it's just a, a force of personality, I think. Uh, he he's he has his he has a catchphrase. Does he? he his catchphrase is still never no mind, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, still never no mind, eh? He also getting towards the end towards the end he starts he starts going <laughs> I've watched seven episodes I don't that hasn't jumped out at I me. Mean. <laughs> he definitely does it um, <laughs> towards the end he starts going a lot like whenever but you the do so- what let's Ou-ah. have that again <laughs> <laughs> but I do like it I like what he's doing and I think he does sort of fit into something slightly different in the later episodes it does it does become something different Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for right now, but do come back next week when we will continue our look at the episode and then go on to look at the later cast of the Army game and all the changes that came with that and the kind of legacy of it all. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to check us out on social media, we are at BritCompod on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook if you search for British Sitcom History Podcast. And if you'd like to see the video version of this podcast with some clips thrown in, then do go to the YouTube, search for British Sitcom History, and you will find us there, along with lots of other visual stuff. Thank you very much, and we will see you next week.